Women in Wellbeing is an Eden Center podcast, highlighting emotional well-being and mental health through Jewish sources and interviews with experts and activists. Our host, Karen Muller-Jackson, is a certified Matan Marala Halakha, Jewish educator, writer, founder of Kifun Lashirut Guidance Program for Religious Girls, and creator of Power Parsha. Just as the mikvah waters create the opportunity for renewal, we hope the insights shared here will serve as a springboard for discussion and rejuvenation. This episode was sponsored anonymously in appreciation of the important topics and discussions the Women and Wellbeing podcast raises. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Eden Center Women and Wellbeing podcast. For this month's podcast, I would like to highlight a key theme which relates to Shavuot and is also at the heart of the Eden Center's mission. Chazal, the sages, compare the Brit between the people of Israel and God at Matan Torah to a Brit Nisuin, the marital covenants. We'll be exploring why this was an attractive and positive characterization of the relationship between God and Israel, and we'll also be thinking about what inspiration we can draw from this for our own marital relationships, including in the realm of intimacy. After my Torah thoughts, I will be speaking with Dr. Hadassah Fromson about challenges to intimacy and sexuality in marriage and about ways for couples to foster positive intimacy. In Talmudic and Midrashic sources, Shavuot is considered the wedding day for Am Yisrael and HaKadosh Baruch Hu. Matan Torah is likened to the Ketubah, all of this marking the Brit, the covenant between Am Yisrael and God. Tanakh, too, is filled with language which characterizes a loving relationship between God and Israel, and even God as husband and Israel as wife. There is, to begin with, there is a mitzvah to love God in the book of Dvarim, which later commentaries understand to be expressed through faith and mitzvot, in other words, commitments. Let's just look at two examples in Tanakh of the characterization of God and Israel in some sort of loving relationship or husband-wife relationship. First, Shira Shirim, which contains vivid imagery and passion of a lover and beloved, is understood by Chazal to be a metaphor for God and the Jewish people. Let's read a little bit from the language in chapter 2. Hark, my beloved, behold, he cometh, leaping upon the mountains, skipping upon the hills. My beloved is like a gazelle or a young heart. Behold, he standeth beyond our wall. He looketh in through the windows. He peers through the lattice. My beloved spoke and said unto me, Rise up, my love, my fair one, and come away. Here in Shira Shirim, the loving relationship is almost of a young lover and beloved chasing each other, falling in love the early years. Yet this, cup, yet this image of this couple in love devoted to each other, is not always the image of the relationship between God and Israel and Tanakh. The metaphor of God and Israel in a marriage is sadly sometimes used by the Nevi'im when talking about Israel's betrayal of God, when going and worshiping uh, other idols and performing other transgressions. Fortunately, there is also the imagery of reunion, of return, and resolution, Chapter 2 of the book of Hosea expresses this most beautifully when it describes God's upset and punishment of Israel, uh, God's wife, for going astray. Yet the chapter ends with a renewed relationship based on dialogue, rediscovery of love, and a relationship which emerges stronger. Says Hosea, 
Assuredly, I will speak coaxingly to her and lead her through the wilderness and speak to her tenderly. I will give her her vineyards from there and the valley of Ahor as a plowland of hope. There she shall respond as in the days of her youth when she came up from the land of Egypt. And in that day, declares the Lord, you will call me Ishi, and no more will you call me Bali. And I will espouse you forever. I will espouse you with righteousness and justice and with goodness and mercy. In Hosea, God is described as saying at this point in this reunion, this rediscovery, this recommitment, God is no longer Ba'ali, husband, which implies less agency for the wife, for Israel. God is Ishi, hinting at a more empowered partnership and loving relationship between Am Israel and God. One other aspect of the characterization of God and Israel as married, as a married couple, is the language of, of love and how to understand love in the context of this metaphor for God and Israel, for Israel toward God. Rabbi Sachs, that's all, wrote about this in the context of the decline of marriage and commitment in Western countries today. Rabbi Sachs writes about God and Israel as having a loving relationship in the following, in his words on Parshat Ve'etchanan. The relationship between God and Israel is built around an act of mutual commitment by God to a people and by the people to God. The commitment itself is an act of love. At the heart of it are the famous words from the Shema in Parshat Ve'etchanan, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. The Torah is the foundational narrative of the fraught, sometimes tempestuous marriage between God and an often obstinate people. It is a story of love. We can see how central love is to the book of Tvarim by noting how often the root ahav, aleph, he, vet, to love, appears in each of the five books of the Torah. It occurs 15 times in Genesis, but none of these is about the relationship between God and a human being. They are about the feelings of husbands for wives or parents for children. This is how often the verb appears in the other four books, twice in Exodus, twice in Leviticus, zero times in Numbers, and 23 times in Deuteronomy. Again and again we hear of love in both directions, from the Israelites to God and from God to the Israelites. Rituals are the framework that keeps love alive. I once knew a wonderfully, ha happy, a wonderfully happy married couple. The husband, with great devotion, brought his wife breakfast in bed every morning. I'm not entirely sure she needed or even wanted breakfast in bed every morning, but she graciously accepted it because she knew it was the homage he paid to her, and it indeed kept their love alive. After decades of marriage, they still seem to be on their honeymoon, without intending any precise comparison. That is what the vast multiplicity of rituals in Judaism, many of them spelled out in the book of Deuteronomy, actually achieved. They sustained the love between God and the people. Hopefully, these sources, which we looked at, Hosea, Shira Shirim, uh, some of the statements of Chazal about Shavuot and Matan Torah, will provide an idealistic and, at the same time, realistic model for spousal relationships and the need to work on intimacy and connection. To help us get practical on this topic, I'll be speaking in just a few moments with Dr. Hadassah Framson. Dr. Hadassah Framson is a counseling psychologist, Yoetzet Halacha, and Rebetzin at Goldridge Green United Synagogue. 
Her clinical work and research focuses on sexual-related issues with a particular emphasis on the Jewish community. She cares deeply about promoting healthy relationships and facilitates education in these areas for couples, parents, and schools. Originally from Gibraltar, she now lives in London with her husband and four children. Hi, Hadassah. Thank you so much for joining us from the UK today. It is my pleasure to be here. For Rosh Chodesh Sivan, we are talking about the natural dynamic within marital relationships of feeling at times closer and at times more distant. This is kind of inspired by the imagery we see throughout Talmudic literature and Midrash uh, and Tanakh as well, characterizing the relationship between Am Yisrael and HaKadosh Baruch Hu as likened to a marital relationship at times, uh, and also uh, experiencing that sort of ups and downs dynamic closer and more distance between God and the Jewish people. So Hadassah, I would like to begin by asking you about the data you have seen in your work and also about the experiences you've heard about in your clinical practice. Are there particular times when couples tend to struggle more with intimacy and sexuality and feeling closer? And what are the ways you have guided couples to create positive intimacy? I would really be hesitant to say that there are particular times, like, you know, defined times that people struggle because everyone's different. And the things that someone finds that they struggle with, other people find it brings them closer, whether it's you know, like a bereavement, right? For some people, that can be a real source of of, um, of of breaking in a relationship. And for some people, that can actually cause them to like, turn towards each other. So, I want to I want to talk more about the factors or different things that can bring that cause the, the struggle or cause the difficulty. So, you know, if we think about it from a more physical, there's a physical side of things, like when people are tired and when they're stressed. Um, and that comes at different stages of life. For example, um, after you've had a baby, or if you're going through medical issues, or menopause, right? These are things that are causing physiological changes, and that can then impact your relationship, right? Because when you're tired and when you're stressed, it's hard to be your best self and bring your best self into the relationship. Um, and that is, you know, maybe its own domain, but also interrelated and interacts with the whole emotional and psychological realm. Like, you can be, you know, stressed because of what's going on and that has a physical effect on your body, but there's also, you know, psychological things that can make you stressed. So, um, you know, feeling a burden expectation at work or feeling dissatisfied or like you have, you know, a bunch, you know, the 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 day-to-day of a busy mother who's trying to manage a household and never manages to finish that list. And, you know, that list keeps getting bigger and it's just always there and, and she turns around and there's more things to add onto the list. Like, all those things put on this psychological burden, but then it can have a physiological effect. And I'd say that that has potential um, to to make couples, um, you know, feel more distant or struggle as they each are kind of turning into their own issues that they need to deal with without necessarily working it out with each other. Um, then there's also relational, like dyna- interrelational dynamic issues. Like if you're angry at each other, that or you're upset at each other, or there's like an unresolved issue. Um, th- like I just, I'm just thinking of someone I saw recently who they we they were having some relation issues with their intimacy, and then we kind of 
we're pinning it on something and when we resolve that issue we realize really what happened was she never forgave her husband for you know something he did two years ago and she never like had the opportunity to be upset about it and like that's just been underlying the whole time so things like that um and yeah I would say it's more like not necessarily identified particular times but rather emotional states or states of being that kind of that from my experience and from what I've seen like this is one of the biggest issues right when people don't resolve stuff and they don't work through things so in terms of um you asked me like what are the um ways to help people have positive intimacy the number one thing that it comes up again and again when we talk about intimacy um in in the literature is about communication right it's one of the highest um factors for sexual satisfaction like good communication is so important you think what has communication got to do with such a physical experience because actually when we talk about intimacy physical intimacy sexual relationship it's it's not just a physical thing nor should it be like that's also very much not what judaism says um sexuality is and interact and that physical interaction is it's a it's something that is you know, on the surface level, physical, there's something going on, but really it's the touching of two souls and the merging of two people. And it's the sharing of vulnerability. You know, you're standing before someone naked in a physical sense, but also in an emotional sense, you're willing to open up to them. And so communication is one of the ways that you can really work on creating that um, connection. Mm. And it's also one of the ways, I mean, I'm a therapist, right? (laughs) So the way I help people is through talking. Talking does wonders. It's like talk, you know, the talking cure. Um, and it, I, and I often think, what is it about talking, right? Because you can have stuff, you can have really hard feelings building up inside you, frustration or anger. And I don't know if this makes sense, but this is how I explain it to clients, and it sits with them, and it's how I think about it myself. Like when when you have a feeling or a thought inside of you, it's completely unbounded, right? It can take up the whole of you. But the moment you have to put that out into words, and like. Or write, whether you write it down or whether you say it out loud, you have to contain it in some way. And that all of a sudden kind of takes it out of you and makes it manageable and dealable with. So, I mean, I'm sure I'm sure many people can relate, but when you're in an argument with your spouse or a disagreement and you have those heavy feelings, you know, it feels so much bigger when you're holding it inside you. Mm-hmm. But as soon as you talk about it, as soon as you let it out, then you, they, you can work with it. And also you'll be surprised by how it can be easily resolved because oftentimes one of the classics is you can't expect your your partner to be your a mind reader. Like they don't know what's going on inside of you unless you tell them. So they can't really resolve or fix or change things unless you tell them. So that would be so, one of the biggest. So just to jump in and, and um, to really explore this a little bit more, I, lo- I love this idea um, that really it, it's a fascinating point that the way to improve positive intimacy and sexuality is actually through, like you said, to improve the physical um act we we actually need to focus more on the the well, let's call it emotional spiritual right of aspect of yes. communication and so and and to get practical do you mean communication about um about expectations about intimacy and sexuality for the couple or about whatever it is that's sort of this block to to reaching that point where or maybe okay. maybe all of the above <laughs> Yeah, to be honest, it depends on what the issue is. So um, if clients are coming in with specific like sexual related issues, um, sexual pain, low libido, 
sometimes there needs to be communication about like that specific thing so your the partners are on the same page about knowing what feels good or what's hurting etc but but on a creating intimacy level it, it's it's about the broader communication it's about feeling like this person understands me i can trust this person really when it comes down to intimacy and sexuality a lot of what um a lot of it comes down to feeling that you can be vulnerable you can be and you can trust this person and that comes through talking through sharing of ideas sharing of self um which by the way doesn't come that doesn't necessarily come automatically or naturally sometimes you have to work on it sometimes you have to make space of it so for example one of the again with a recent clients young parents their first child you know they're struggling the, the, the wife always finds that she's really you know she's just never interested in having intimate time together and partly it's because she's so tired yeah. and that is because she's going to bed so late and that is because they're not really carving out time to make space for intimacy in their life so you know it's not something that just necessarily happens automatically and I think that's a big myth like sometimes the most romantic thing you can do is schedule in time to spend with each other you know just 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 making space in the calendar and if that means not doing the dishes till tomorrow morning or you know making a simpler lunch that's that's what it takes you have to kind of proactively create a space in your schedule in your relationship to allow your relationship to flourish or to allow yourself to invest or to give yourself time without pressure to like open up and talk before you can actually have um you know move on to physical things there's actually a great book which i recommend called love worth making um say that again it's called love worth making by stephen snyder mm-hmm. um and one of the things he talks about is that you know there's sometimes there's differences between men and women but one of the things is is for a woman to kind of be able to really kind of let her body do the right do the right things um physically like in terms of like starting the process you, you, you can't have anything on your mind. You need to like just talk everything out. You need to get it out of your head so it's not swirling around in your mind. And then once you talk that out, you almost can allow everything naturally to, to take, um, you know, to take its own course. And I think there's something about that, especially in today's generation. Um, and this, again, is something that's come up um, in, in NatSAL studies, which are like national studies in, in the UK of like lifestyle that they've noticed a decline in the amount of time people are having um, basically are having intercourse with each other um, in the wider population over every 10 years. It seems to be that, they, you know, whereas 30 years ago, people were having intercourse like four times a month or four times a week, now three times, then it was three times, two times. Um, and someone was saying how part of it is that, you know, we're so distracted nowadays. So imagine trying to be with with your partner, with your husband, with your wife, and like you know, just before you turn the lights out, you're paying your parking ticket, right? Like that's not really gonna be that's not creating a space yes. or a time in your relationship, right? That's that's actually taking away from it because yes. you've got to allow it to flourish. So there's something about nowadays the fact that we have we can do everything all the time, and our work life balance is completely disrupted and. You know, we're looking at emails first thing in the morning and late at night, you know, right before we go to bed that we don't really have this space in right. the same way. Right. It's like to take, uh, to borrow um, terms from tefillah and Judaism, you know, to have kavana, to have sort of intentional time and space. Um, I, yeah, it's it's very and much. And Kedusha, if we think about the part, you know, Sefer Vayikra, it's all about creating, you know, 
a, a, a literally a physical space in this world for God's presence with a Mishkan and you know a physical you know the the, the Levium or a physical a people where it's carving out places and spaces for holiness for things to flourish yes we'll get to that in uh, a few minutes um so I, I wanna um my next question does relate to uh perhaps to different um I know you had said you were focused more on people's experience rather than particular periods of time. Um, mm-hmm. And I have to say just anecdotally, and I, I'm sure this will resonate with some of the um, uh, parents of older children, you know, when, when uh, I had the younger children and the babies, it did feel like I was exhausted and there was no time. And yet now I look back and think, you know, now with the older children, it's a different kind of challenge of always around up till all hours. Yeah. So again, finding that, you know, finding that that quiet time and space is uh, different kinds of challenges at different times. Um, so, so I'd like to ask you, what are the biggest obstacles and causes for couples struggling with intimate relations? Um, I'll, I'll, I'll add in that, of course, the Eden Center has done a wonderful job of raising awareness about the time leading up to going to the mikvah where there's an imposed physical restriction, physical distance uh, between husband and wife, which can be challenging for some couples. Uh, but I'd like to also take it beyond that. There, there's other times where we, you know, let's say not not imposed, but perhaps um you know, inadvertently imposed um, distance between a couple. Um, so are there some practical tools to help build intimacy? And um, okay, and we'll, we'll pause there. <laughs> That's enough. Okay. <laughs> <I love this. laughs> um, yes, I think the biggest obstacles I see is like getting into a rut, getting into a cycle of negativity. Um, so for example, um, you know, this can be relevant in other ways, but let's just take a case of a woman who's just because I've recently been seeing someone like this, you know, is struggling with um, vaginismus, which is um, painful, painful sex, um, because the, mus- the muscles in the area are kind of all tight and clenched and it makes it really a very difficult, either it's painful or a penetration is not possible. So in a case like that, the effects are the woman, you know, the husband might feel rejected or the woman, or even if he's not rejected in that moment, because she associates now, you know, sexual intercourse with pain, the next time she's not really feeling so excited for intercourse, the next time her husband makes an advance, she kind of shacks it off. And it's not because she doesn't want him, she just doesn't want the end result. However, he interprets, she doesn't want him, right? So I would say like the biggest obstacles for intimacy, one of the biggest obstacles is getting stuck in this like negative, um, perpetuating cycle. And actually, funny enough, even though I talk about um, I said before, like, there's not necessarily time. And I do think it's a very big myth that Nida and Nida causes issues in a marriage. I think a lot of it's, or, you know, causes that distance. And I think obviously everyone experiences differently, but when I, I did my study and actually found that when I did my study with 600 participants um, across the world, men and women who are Jewish, Orthodox, modern Orthodox, um, non-Orthodox, one of the things that came out very clearly was that um, those people who were highly religious were, had more sexual satisfaction. And, and people ask me, you know, did you ask about mikvah? And I was like, not really, because the way that people experience mikvah is based, is based on how they experience it. It depends on their attitudes towards it. But one of the things that mikvah really does do, and I think, and this is something I teach to my brides, and I think this is a, such a powerful point, is that it offers an opportunity to kind of like 
take a break, take a breather, reset. And, you know, as you prepare in the mikvah, you kind of think, okay, I'm going to, it's a, it's a chance, right? It's a chance to restart, to, to get out of that cycle, to take a step out of this negative cycle and choose to come in with a different perspective or to start again. And, you know, this is the same idea as, as Yom Kippur, right? Where we, we, we are so blessed that we have an opportunity to just wipe the slate clean. Oftentimes I'm seeing clients and we talk about, you know, issues and burdens from 10 years ago that are still pressing on them. And often, you know, you just want to kind of be able to wipe the slate clean for them because they're carrying these burdens and this pain for so many years. And it's a real like opportunity. It's a real chesed that we can, that we can just wipe the slate clean once a year, but also within our relationship, if we could use mikvah as an opportunity to kind of step out of that negative cycle and start again, I think that can be a very powerful tool in a relationship. Um, and it's not simple, right? To just kind of say all the, and all the hurt I felt, you know, let's just kind of move forward. Let's look, look backwards. So I think that's a very powerful tool. Um, and one yeah, that can I'll, be helpful. I'll just add to that as I'm listening yeah. to you, that in a way it's like, it's like what you're saying. It's just how you, you know, seeing the negative and seeing the positive at the same time, it's actually an imposed time in time and place in the calendar and in people's lives where, um, where there's a mitzvah, there's an expectation to be together sexually and intimately. And so there the, the halakha has in a way done the intentional time and place um, for people, yeah. which is quite amazing. Yeah, and you use the word, word intentional. And I find, and I, you know, I totally agree with that. And it's, you know, something I found in this study that I did where I was looking, my study is called Does Religion Spoil Your Sex Life? Um, and you can access it online. Um, it was for my doctoral thesis. And what I basically wanted to find out is do, you know, how does religion impact sexual satisfaction in the Orthodox Jewish community? And when I looked at the different factors involved, what became very clear was the act is that your attitude affects it. So when I found that highly religious people were more sexually satisfied, why? Why is that the case? And um, I had an attitude scale and I looked at three different attitudes. One was permissiveness, the extent to which you believe in that sex is a casual experience you know you can share it with many people the other the other factor was um, um, utilitarian um, it was called instrumentality the ex extent to which you see sex is just kind of a very physical release it's a way to you know use someone else for your physical pleasure and then the final one was communion which is the extent to which you see sex as a way to con intimately connect on an emotional and spiritual level with another person and unsurprisingly, the highest um, correlate with sexual satisfaction was communion. Mm -hmm. And the people who are in the highly religious group also had the highest levels of communion and the lowest levels of permissiveness and instrumentality. And the reason I find that interesting, because it basically is telling us that the way that you view something makes it, it, it increases your satisfaction in it. So when, when you see um, sexual intercourse as something, not just a physical release, but rather something on a deeper on a, you, you have your kavana, right? You'll see like, wow, this is me connected with another person and God is involved and um, it's a way of really knowing another person, right? Like Adam, it's like a deep, intimate knowing. Then it becomes something that's more satisfying, a more satisfying experience. It's the kavana, the intention that you put into it, which is what actually makes it a more satisfying experience. That seems to be, you know, what my study showed is that the, the hashkafa basically, the way that you choose to see something 
affects how you experience it. Mm, amazing. We're definitely going to link to that in the in the uh, the show notes. Thank <laughs> you so much. It sounds fascinating. Um, so um, I want to ask you one last question to yeah. link us back to, we've talked a lot about intimacy and, intimacy and sexuality between a couple. Um, I'd like to refocus a little bit now and think about, as you were just getting into the more uh, spiritual aspects, um, uh, I'd like to hear from you a little bit more about the, the spiritual aspect of intimacy and sexuality in a relationship and and how we see or do we see a parallel model here between husband oh. and wife and between um, the relationship between Israel and Hashem? Yeah, I think when I was when I think about the spiritual aspect of intimacy, my my framework at the moment very much is Judaism. So I think of this idea of the can't allowing the can. So what I mean by this, when I think of my child on Shabbat afternoon, he wants a very long Shabbat afternoon here in the UK. Shabbat comes out at like quarter to ten. <laughs> it's very late. Um, and um, he wants to play with his airplane that makes the noise. And then we say, oh, it's Yukon on Shabbat. He's like, oh, I don't like Shabbat. Why can't I play with my toys? And we tell him, well, you can't play with your toys. You're right. And that's really annoying. But think about all the things you can do on Shabbat, right? You can spend time with your family. You can um, hang out with your friends, you can go to B'nai Akiva in the afternoon, which you don't do at any, any other time of the week. And this idea of the can't allowing the cans. So um, the same with um, a relationship. I think part of what means bringing in the holiness is having these can'ts which allow the cans. So so particularly, you know, the first thing that comes to mind is the laws of Tarat and Mishpacha and Nidan and the timeframes of when you can't touch that allow that really, really, really being a very powerful force to then appreciate touch. So again, oftentimes I'll see couples coming in to me and touch does nothing for them, right? Like, you know, in the sense that it's not really leading, there's no sexualization of the touch. It's not like, it's not doing what it's supposed to be doing. And partly because they might be getting their emotional needs from each other, from the other, from just their general touching. And for many reasons, people aren't keep, uh, don't have to keep the laws of, whether they're taking their pills back to back or whether someone's pregnant or they haven't had their period for a long time. There's so many reasons. But something you can find is that people, you know, touch loses the power of what it can be. And, and <laughs> funny enough, in cases like that, as a therapist, we might impose a no-touch time or only touch when you feel like you really want to. So you kind of re-bring out the, um, the spark in it. Mm. And I mean, I think that's just an interesting way of thinking in general about Judaism, because often we do feel restricted by all the things we can't do. But when we start reframing that and thinking, these can't give me the cans, um, it, it, it changes how you feel about it. Um, and in terms of, the, of um, you were asking about how it maps onto... Yeah, the sort of parallel relationship between God and the people of Israel as a sort of, uh, I mean, some people find this uncomfortable, but it's all over the Midrash and, you know, and ideas of. Uh, yeah, I, I very much think um, and appreciate that, you know, it's so hard to talk about a relationship with God because we don't see God, we don't experience God. But I really do believe that the relationships we have can be models of how we interact with God. And when it comes to um, a relationship with, with your, your husband, your wife, the thing that, you know, fosters this relationship is making time and space, right? Like if you don't make 
you know, speaking to myself here, if I don't make the effort and time and carve it out and put it in my diary that I need to daven, like I'm not going to daven. I'm not going to have that time to talk to God. And if I don't, um, if I don't, when I'm talking to God, if I don't open up myself and talk and, you know, allow myself to be vulnerable, I'm also not, I'm going to have a limited experience with God. So I think all the things that you would say of what to do to increase intimacy in a relationship, like reframing it in the positive, opening yourself up, creating time and space, very much map onto how you can enhance your relationship with God. That's beautiful. Thank you so much, Hadassah. This has been really fascinating and inspiring. Um, and I want to thank you for being with us and wish you a Chag Shavuot Sameach and a Chodesh Tov. Thank you. Thank you all of you. Thank you. This podcast is hosted by the Eden Center, whose goal is to reinvigorate the ancient female ritual of mikveh as a sacred space for women and use it as the natural platform it is to connect to Jewish women's health, well-being, and healthy relationships, enhancing Jewish women and family life. We invite you to visit our website, www.theedencenter.com, to learn more about our work in making mikveh relevant, welcoming, and meaningful. This episode is a product of the Eden Center. If you enjoyed today's podcast, please consider sponsoring a podcast in dollars or shekels at bit.ly backslash E-D-E-N-P-O-D. Additionally, give us a five-star rating, share this podcast on social media, and encourage others to subscribe.